The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan, you are about to listen to, contains spoilers from the following. Black Mirror, The Handmaid's Tale, Westworld, Fahrenheit 451, Brave New World, 1984, Her, A Clockwork Orange, Avengers Age of Ultron, Spider-Man Far From Home, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Ready or Not, and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Thanks for joining us. We're, we're back with season four of I Think Therefore I Fan. It's been a little while. The whole summer. The whole summer. This, is, this has been a crazy summer for us. Um, and what's noteworthy about that is that there's absolutely nothing noteworthy about that. Every summer, just, you know, we, we get done with teaching and we think, oh boy, it's going to be great. We're going to go for walks and do research. And then suddenly things happen and, and there's projects and we're traveling and um, I stayed home this summer, but you did your exciting Reagan Fellowship. Yeah, I was. I lived in North Carolina for the whole month of what was it? July, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. Most, yeah. Most of July and part of August. Yeah, the Culture and Animals Foundation funded this research fellowship at in, uh, in partnership with North Carolina State, and uh, it was the Tom Reagan Research Fellowship. And what it what it entailed was I was in the library all day, every day, looking at an archive of animal rights, animal welfare material. So it's really rewarding, really lovely. North Carolina's gorgeous, uh, very humid, but yeah, really so pretty. I'll, I'll draw attention to just one part of it. I was getting some of the updates of cool things that you came across. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no shortage of interesting stuff from the Victorian age. Right. The, right. Yeah. The vivisectionists and <laughs> yeah. the, the debates were raging back then. This isn't a recent phenomenon where people are going, well, we should care about animals. It's- That's right. Yeah. Um, so there were uh, folders and folders, boxes and boxes, really, of uh, pamphlets and other promotional materials for um, from groups that were trying to end vivisection. So like research on animals done to test products or um, to further medical research or what have you. Um, but it wasn't just vivisection, anti-vivisection. It was also, you know, anti-cruelty to animals of various types. And so, yeah, just really great material there. Um, I learned a lot. It really uh, was great for my research agenda. So mm-hmm. I'm and, very grateful. And then the Henry Salt stuff, who I falsely believed was the eight salt and eight salt Esquire fish and chips. So, uh... <laughs> Yeah, Henry Salt's great, man. He puts forward arguments in really compelling ways, um, but also really entertaining. Uh, pretty hilarious, actually. I would really recommend reading him if you're interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, and good, good fish. No, 
not, not good fish. All right, so cool. Um, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about technological dystopias. Okay, so technological, these are dystopias brought about via technology. Is that the, mm -hmm. the idea? Yeah, and I mean, so all, most, most dystopia, uh, dystopian stories have some element of this. But I think we're seeing in pop culture right now, like a wave of dystopias that are um, where, uh, and I'll go into this in more detail in a bit, but um, are dystopias where technology serves the role that government once did in a dystopian story. Nice, nice. So yeah, governments are um, these evil things and they, they by design um, attempt to exploit certain groups and turn things into dystopias. Um, but now we don't have to have some sort of nefarious agent, right? Mm -hmm. We just create the technology, it runs its course, and we end up with similar results. Is that? I think so. So let's get clear on our terms for a minute. So it, um, in all, so I'll just do the cute undergraduate essay thing and, and mm -hmm. say, here's what the dictionary says a dystopia is. You, you should say, since the beginning of time, the dictionary <laughs> has said... <laughs> So uh, dictionary.com has a dystopia as a society characterized by human misery as squalor, oppression, disease, and overcrowding. Merriam-Webster has it, an imagined world or society in which people lead wretched, dehumanized, fearful lives. And Wikipedia has it, a community or society that is undesirable or frightening. That one seems kind of weak, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you take the ors to be sort of an exclusive you know, either undesirable or frightening, or you could even take it in the inclusive sense. Um, a society that's undesirable, right? Mm -hmm. I, I could not desire all kinds of things. Sure. For example, um, if you said, let's move to Jamaica and live on the beach, because I like to work and go to philosophy conferences and do all that, I would say, well, that's undesirable to me. Right. But it certainly doesn't count as a dystopia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So once again, Wikipedia fails. <laughs> I think uh, the Merriam-Webster one is interesting too, because it it seems like, according to that definition, um, dystopias can't happen, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, well, depending on, on how you take it. So they have an imagined world or society. I guess right. you can imagine the society in which you actually live, but uh, right, it makes right. it sound like it's inherently fictional. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's terribly optimistic. One thing that these definitions of dystopia don't capture, I think, is that frequently dystopias are posed as, uh, presented as an attempt at a utopia, so an attempt at a perfect society. Uh, and then you see that in that attempt, things go horribly wrong. Um, right, it's always someone's conception, right, of, of what utopia would look like um, and often doesn't sort of jibe with lots of other people's conception of it. I think that when we imagine a, when we imagine a dystopia, we think it would be nice to have certain things. We think it would be uh, good to have certain of our needs satisfied. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's an open, it's really an open question about whether that really would be good. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I'll come to that. So um, let's talk about maybe the most famous utopia. Mm -hmm. And this is Thomas More's utopia. Um, that he wrote in 1516. Uh, so in that work, Moore describes a society, the utopians, and they've basically got it all figured out. Um, and they, he, so he considers questions like, what if we didn't value wealth 
So one really charming element of that story uh, has it that gold isn't highly valued by the utopians. And in fact, um, like uh, jewelry that's made out of gold and, and such uh, is, is something that is given to children and is like the plaything of children. They might wear it when they're playing. Uh, um, and if it were to be worn by adult humans, it would be viewed as silly. Like, so picture maybe wearing a pirate costume or a princess dress or something mm -hmm. uh, might seem, I mean, nothing wrong with wearing that as an adult, but might seem a little, <laughs> might seem a little unusual. Um, you wouldn't wear that to work, right? Uh, it's funny you should bring this up the day after we're at the local comic con. <laughs> 10,000 Disney princesses walking around. Oh, that is great. You know, so I'm not, not meaning to criticize it. But, um, yeah, yeah. but uh, so just as a demonstration of the fact that this is a contingent fact that we care about wealth as much as we do. So what if a society didn't, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? He also explores questions like what if we shared resources so that no one had to worry about living, about how they were going to earn their livelihood or whether their loved ones would be okay, right? It's just... You know, he kind of, the, the way he describes the society, it's kind of like living in a commune or something where um, some people provide certain services, some people provide certain products, and they just sort of exchange it. Mm -hmm. What if we avoided war at all costs? So if I remember correctly, I think the utopians have, it's not that they never have conflicts, it's that they have, they're, they're, they've they like in, entered into arrangements with other um Near, with nearby peoples who are more warlike to like fight their squabbles for them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's great. We get rid of war by um, by outsourcing, get, outsourcing, getting other people to do it. <laughs> um, and then he also explores this question of what if we just allowed people to believe what they what is what their consciences dictate. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, all all seem to be good things, and the utopians seem to be uh, living happy lives. Um, so what a lot of more contemporary dystopian stories, the, the greats, the classics, um, explore these questions of like, well, what, what would happen if, um, the government tried to solve the most fundamental human problems? Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, the one of the most fundamental I think is what if we could make everyone happy? That's what everyone's really after, isn't it? Happiness. So you see this explored in Brave New World, right? So you have the, the people can take these Soma tablets and be happy. Um, but uh, the, the reader is left to question whether this is really desirable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this, you find out. So all these people, uh, um, what's great about Brave New World is it explores this question. The, the government makes people happy, um, not just by giving them the Soma tablets and making it the case that they they get what they want. That is happiness. They, they engineer society such that it's not just that the government gives the people what they want. They control what the people want in the first place. Right. right? right. So um, they grow babies um, outside of the womb and just a little bit of alcohol is put in some of these pods, right? That, that, mm -hmm. That's producing the children. And so there are people with varying degrees of, um, mental competence and the, based on the way they've engineered them um, they want different things they pursue different jobs uh, and so the government can sort of creates this system where the people want to do what they're doing 
Um, and then they have the Soma to boot. So we've got a government that can make people happy. All right. You, you had me at alcohol, but, but, <laughs> but this is supposed to be bad, right? I, I understand. <laughs> so also further, what if we could eliminate need, get rid of anxiety, minimize uncertainty? I think the, all the greats, the great dystopian stories, I would identify the greats and you can add to this list if you mm-hmm. think so. But I think of the greats as... Uh, 1984, mm-hmm. Fahrenheit 451, although that's my least favorite, honestly. Mm-hmm. Brave New World, The yeah, Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale. Tale, right? Those are all just classics of dystopian literature. And they all explore this question of the relationship between individuals and governments mm-hmm. and to what extent the, the government trying to solve some of our problems actually becomes a form of oppression and control. It actually in the moment is making me think of the grand inquisitor. Mm-hmm. So the, where the, the, the religious authorities recognize that uh, the, the church, the, 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 the masses would be willing to let the church do whatever, so long as they give them bread. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that when a government satisfies the needs of the people, um, there are challenges. Right. So I've got my existentialism class reading the myth of Sisyphus. Mm-hmm. That seems kind of dystopian, right? Well, are the basic human condition? Well, or just the, you know, <laughs> yes. a society where there's one guy and mm. he's just pushing a rock up a hill. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, that part of the myth of Sisyphus. It, the it, actual myth of Sisyphus part. It, yeah, it, it meets the undesirable <laughs> requirement and also the imagined requirement. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of these stories explore this question of what makes life challenging and then imagines what would happen if the government fixed that. So one of the things that makes life challenging is the um, accumulation of knowledge, right? The knowledge gathering. So a lot of these stories describe cases in which, well, it's not as hard to accumulate knowledge if the pool is smaller, right? right? So we'll get rid of books, um, Fahrenheit 451, or we'll, the, the, the most beautiful example of this, and is 1984, where we're going to just um, minimize language to such a degree that you can express almost anything in just a very small number of words. Mm-hmm. Right? We'll, and, and, and then it won't be hard to know things. We can communicate very effectively. Um, uh, and when I say it won't be hard to know things, it's just because, well, the government has sort of limited the kinds of things that a, any being would even consider that they might want to know, right? Mm-hmm. Make and, and then, of course... That highlights the idea that this challenging thing about life is actually part of what makes life meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, even if it's difficult, it requires hard work. Nevertheless, it's, it's one of the good things about being a human being. So these stories also explore questions about war. Uh, what if we were always victorious? So how would, that, how would that impact the lives of citizens? And so you see in works like 1984, um, they create this feeling of perpetual war. Whether this is going on or not just remains extremely vague, right? It might just be government saying, you know, that we've always been at war. Um, we'll always continue to be at war. And if you want to be safe, you've got to rely on the governmental structure that we've set up. And anything to the contrary is fake news. Right, <laughs> right. Now, what if we knew who we are and we didn't, we were, and we didn't have to go through the anguish of self-creation? Well, in these dystopias where caste systems are set up, um, we don't have to figure out who we are to go through the difficult task of creating ourselves. We're told who we are. 
Um, so what, what you see, as I've mentioned, is that these very things that you might imagine would make for a utopia, that the government solved all our basic fundamental problems, really serve to highlight what human values are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of them, you don't even get the alcohol. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like the Handmaid's Tale, right? Some people get it, but not, but not most. Right. So, uh, but, and then they're getting it in the womb. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, like, or not, the, the fake womb. Yeah. No. Uh, so I think that, that these, these, this, the typical lessons that we learn from dystopian stories are lessons like the value of critical thinking, the value of language, the value of a true peace, not just a, a, a story you're being told about how safe you are, mm-hmm. the value of autonomously chosen love and sex. Certainly that's pursued in The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. Um, the value of reproduction and childbirth. Uh, these are these are all things we want to have control over, and really, I should have in this list the value of free will, if there is such a thing, or mm-hmm. at least the illusion of free will. Right, the value of the illusion of free will. People have been dining <laughs> out on that for for centuries. <laughs> and then, so what I think is interesting about these dystopias that are more technological, we'll turn to that notion, um, are is that it it's, it's it, these technological dystopias, and in particular those that come up in the TV show Black Mirror. This is right. that's a great show for these kinds of things. Um, are able that the tech, technological aspects of them allow us to explore a wider set of human values than the ones that are generated by these gov- government dystopias. Dystopias, nice. In these more traditional dystopian stories, the main tension is between persons and governments. So the tension is, on the one hand, it's possible for governments to have the resources to meet important human needs, and it seems like that's something that we want. Right. They they do that in other countries. <laughs> <laughs> Some other countries. Some other countries. (laughs) But on the other hand, it may be the case that satisfying one's own needs is part of what it is to live a flourishing life. Maybe part of what it is to live a meaningful human life is to set goals, have a certain set of desires, and then work to satisfy those. Yeah, I sort of picture Alex in later A Clockwork Orange, right, where he's just hooked up to various machines. He's Mm -hmm. being shown disturbing images, but he's also being kind of fed, right? Mm-hmm. He's, all his needs are being taken care of for him so he can concentrate entirely on, you know, whatever kind of brainwashing is going on. I mean, that's just not even right. living a life anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, consistent with Richard Taylor's view on what it is to live a meaningful life, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, technological dystopias encourage us to ask a different set of questions. And these questions are inherently philosophical. Uh, and, and we can ask not not just these questions in a first order way, we can also ask a second order question about these questions, which is, does does meaning in a human life or a flourishing human life in any way depend on a particular resolution uh, or a particular solution or answer to any of these questions? So here's what I have in mind and then we'll pursue them in a little bit more depth. So what even am I, right? Mm-hmm. What, what is the nature um, of, a, of a person? Uh, does does the person have to be made out of a particular kind of material? Um, am I identical to my body? Can I exist independently from my body? Am I free? What metaphysically is my relationship to other sources of consciousness? What should I be? What, if anything, is the significance of a human being? And so this gets explored, obviously, um, one of the uh, best examples of... Uh, a concept in pop culture that challenges us along these lines is um, like artificial intelligence, right, right? Right. So of various types, robots, 
Um, you know, can can a person be a person? Can a can a can a bit of artificial intelligence be a person? And what's more, could I somehow be that artificial intelligence? Right. Mm-hmm. So here's here's what I'm thinking um, in particular: the show Westworld. Mm-hmm. There are lots of these issues explored in Westworld. You might think of Westworld as a dystopia, right? Um, right. In in a way. So again, spoiler. Right. Uh, but we we've got the spoiler alert at the beginning. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So um, you know, not initially, it's it's not portrayed as a dystopia, but it mm-hmm. very well may be the whole time. Yeah, because if you've got these, if if the um, the robots are actually sentient, um, then this is just hell for them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so you've got different accounts of how much they recollect from one moment to the next, and but you know, if we were being tortured. And we just forgot about it every 15 minutes. That wouldn't make it any less bad to be tortured. Right, right. Um, although I'm thinking, in some accounts of um, personhood uh, and some accounts of uh, the conditions under which a being is, con- is deserving of moral consideration um, have to do with the extent to which that being can um, is going to persist into the future and thinks of themselves as an existing entity. Mm-hmm. In, in going forward into the future, so right, and and it's interesting with Westworld because you've got the um, artificially intelligent robots mm-hmm. being reset every day, but then they have these these conversations with the creators where they access a different mode, and yeah. they are these kind of ongoing things, right? Yesterday we discussed this, and right, uh, previously we discussed that. Now they do a lot of stuff messing with the timeline, so you you think it's happening at one time, and yeah. And the events were at different times. Um, but there is this kind of place in the, the artificially intelligent creatures that gets accessed by Bernard um, that is an ongoing thing, that has mm-hmm. memories of just those times. And right. Dolores' uh, counseling sessions or therapy sessions or debriefings or whatever you want to call them. It makes you wonder, again, these are questions about the nature of persons, and uh, this matters, I think, to you know, what we care about. I mean, so like, um, it may be if, if the situation is the way you're describing that there are actually two people at play there in a single yeah, yeah. physical structure. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that remembers the things that happened that came before and the one that doesn't. Right. Or you could um, think of it as, as one person, which it makes it interesting because it's a, it's an open question. What's the right, um, take on it. But, um, imagine, you know, the, the reset character, Dolores, um, is analogous to someone that's that's under a you know hypnotic suggestion mm-hmm. that when they hear certain things they they shut down for a while right so mm-hmm. um, and this could just come up periodically okay now you're in this hypnotized state where you don't have access to all your normal memories and yeah. and your your continuity well then that raises interesting questions about whether you whether you're actually persisting through those moments right right or right. if you're just on pause or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing I was thinking about Westworld has to do with, um, provided that I understood the plot line of season two, mm-hmm. which I'm not entirely clear, sure that I did. I've, I've confessed to that at different episodes of the podcast. Yeah, don't, don't worry. Season three is going to come along with some facts that make everything that you think about season two Obsolete. ultimately false, just <laughs> like they did with season yeah. one and season two. So it seems like, uh, one of the main plot points is that, um, there are guests who essentially upload themselves onto those little spheres. You mean the hosts? Uh, guests. Aren't they guests? 
I mean, ultimately, they're, they're customers. Oh, yeah. Right? Is, am, I, am I wrong about this? The, right. They're, they're, they're right. They're customers that don't know that, that they're robots. That want to be immortal. Customers, so the, oh, I see where you're going with this. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. So, and... and and they get uploaded onto these spheres, which can then be placed into into another system. Into a, into, that's, that's right. Yeah, and and so I mean that just asks uh, prompts the question: uh, What is the relationship between myself and my physical body? Um, so this this view encourages us to think about human beings as um, essentially software rather than hardware. Mm-hmm. You know, where software can be run on multiple different kinds of machines. Um, but if that's the case, this is one of these concerns for this account of personal identity, uh, then there can be copies, right? right? Presumably. Right. So there could be more than one you if what you are is software. Right. It's it's a variation. We did an episode on the ship of Theseus a while back, yeah. right? It's it's that theme. Um, mm-hmm. you know, which which one's you? Um and then, you know, Parfit's got all this interesting stuff where he says, you know, at, at that point, none of them are you. But you survive, which is is also a really weird tack to take. Yeah. And then, so coming back to the discussion of value, then, you wonder whether it matters. You know, if we're the kinds of things that can be uploaded um, into a different system, I guess I maybe just put it this way. Do we want to be those kinds of things? (laughs) Um, You might think that uh, being, I'll, I'll go... Cartesian here and saying uh, being unified in some way with a body mm-hmm. uh, is part of the human condition, right? Um, we get sick, we we go through an aging process. I mean, these these types of things aren't pleasant, but it might be kind of not to be too hokey, but kind of what makes life beautiful in a sense that yeah. we go through physical changes. It's somehow essential. Um, yeah, but other things can be beautiful too, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, let me know if I'm sort of getting ahead in, in what you were thinking you wanted to talk about. But um, if I were offered, you know, my consciousness downloaded into one of these spheres and I could exist forever, I don't know that I find that sort of immortality attractive. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, if I could be the sort of thing that grows, um, say, like the operating system in her, where, you know, so... That's decidedly not human, but something sort of very beautiful about the way she describes her experience. Well, I'm interacting with people and, you know, um, or other operating systems and we're talking at a zillion bits a second. And, you know, my interactions with humans seems, you know, like there's an eternity between each thought and, you know. See, that sounds like if I that sounds like torture to me. Like I already I already kind of think uh, our. The extent to which we can do that. There are good things about globalization and there are terrible things about globalization, obviously. But like one thing that we feel perpetually socially on all the time mm-hmm. is just like uh, I enjoy a lot of my interact. I enjoy most of my interactions with people. So I'm not trying to uh, be a downer on my friends here. But, um, you know, people need space for leisure. People need space for relaxation and to mm-hmm. wind down, I would think that if you you were like the operating system from her or Ultron from Age of Ultron or Vision, mm-hmm. that it, that would be so anxiety provoking. It almost would feel like you would uh, y- you would have to be a different kind of being to not just 
Uh, yeah. I guess at that point you are a different kind of being. But if you didn't have the, <laughs> the nervous system to accompany the anxiety with physical sensations, yeah, true. You, you would just be smart. It would just be knowing stuff. But then once we've departed from the 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 extent to which we have physical sensations, first, I don't even know if we can fully understand what it would be like to be a being devoid of physical sensations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if if we if if, if sensation is out of the picture. Can we even talk meaningfully about enjoying our lives? Right, right. Yeah, that's that's the problem. What I'm imagining is what it would be like for me to be a lot smarter. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting around all smart going, I can't imagine oh, that. Huh? Oh, you're, you're very nice. <laughs> so to illustrate some of these ideas further, I think it would be useful to talk about a few episodes of Black Mirror. So one of the episodes is the, the episode called The Entire History of You. Oh, yeah, I love that one. And the... Plot major plot point here is that um, some people in a society have this grain implanted. I can't remember, like in their ear or something like that. I can't remember, um, and it basically records everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. So that the people that have this implanted can play it back. And so this uh, gets challenges us to think about the relationship between humans and their memory. Right. Mm-hmm. So in principle, there's nothing that you couldn't review from this grain. So the, your your memory is essentially perfect because you have this extension of yourself that is this grain that remembers everything. Um, and it makes, it causes reflection on this question of whether uh, there's something important. So a lot, a lot of theories of personal identity have memory right out in front that a person remains the same person through time if they have a memory connection with themselves at some mm-hmm. earlier period of time. And the, the, there are lots of objections to that view, right. but, um, can't it, remember what any of them are. <laughs> it might also be important, uh, to us being who we are, that we have faulty memories, that, that our memories are, um, disconnected, that many of our memories are confabulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might serve an, an important purpose. So obviously it's, it's, it's valuable. Um, it, we're, we exist. It's evolutionarily advantageous for us to remember things. But it's also really important that we forget things, mm-hmm. right? I mean, think about, think about those things that you just can't forget, stupid things you said or did at an earlier stage in your life that keep you up at night. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh, you kind of wish you would forget those. And then there are a lot of things, just growing pains types of things that you experience through your life. It's probably best that you forget. Right. And and even things that it's not best in the sense that you mean it. Um, just imagine if you remembered every detail of every experience that you had, right? I mean, you've got a finite amount of storage space essentially in your yeah. brain. Sensory overload. Yeah. And, and you know, we're, we're designed in such a way that important stuff bubbles to the surface when it needs mm-hmm. to. And mm-hmm. And all that. So if if we're, you know, if we would have to have really giant heads <laughs> <laughs> to retain, you know, I mean, just, you know, one month worth of, of memories, you know, of everything that you experienced, everything you thought about what you experienced, every, you know, mm-hmm. um, all the things that you thought about that weren't experiential. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Too much. And that's 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 yeah. way too much storage space required. Yeah. So again, uh, I'll just bring this back to the point I was making earlier that the the technological elements have replaced the governmental element in these kinds of dystopias where it's like, okay, we um, like for example, I'm just going to confess that I locked myself out of the office today mm-hmm. um, because we drove up here. We're recording from Utah State right now. Um, 
We, Beautiful cash ballet. <laughs> and since Richard drove, I didn't think to bring my keys, but of course I had the key to my office is on my ring. Somebody let us in. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, uh, this caused me to think, oh, I wish I had a better memory. Um, mm-hmm. And so we imagine a situation in which we have perfect memories. And that sounds like it would be utopia mm-hmm. or at least along that dimension but then so shows like black mirror get us to challenge that idea that it would be so good if we had perfect memories maybe it would Mm -hmm. be better if we didn't so uh in in that episode um the people can play back their memories and there's this happy couple uh but the woman in the couple had an affair at some point earlier Mm -hmm. and they could just let it go i'm not saying that's best how best to deal with that kind of situation but um but, the, you know, the the, she, the boyfriend actually views this memory of hers and is tortured by it and they break up and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not part of his memory, which he can always access. There's right, no, right, no right. getting away from that. Well, he can delete it ultimately. Yeah. But but, um, uh, but not if we had perfect memories. Right. If we had perfect memory, if, if it wasn't a grain, but was something that, mm-hmm. right. Um, it's good that we forget things, I guess, is, is the take home message. Um, but though, no, I'm not saying it's, we ought all to forget about adultery or something. <laughs> but there are things it's good to forget. Right. In case you forgot, it's I think com. <laughs> okay, then what, another one of my favorite episodes from Black Mirror is uh, Archangel. And I, I just watched this one again recently. And so uh, obviously for parents out there, um, Children, their children are like the most important thing in their lives or among the very most important. For most parents out there. Yeah, for most parents. Um, And so you are and the world is a really scary place uh, when you're picturing your kids out navigating it. There's all sorts of bad things that could happen. So Archangel explores this idea. Well, what if you could. uh, First of all, see your child at all times, monitor their various physical states uh, and shield them from the bad things. So uh, it's Archangel's the system um, that you can have sort of, again, implanted into your child so that you can see what they're seeing at all times. Um, and you can actually put a filter on them. Like, so what one noteworthy uh, set of scenes from, from the episode is uh, this little girl on her way to, way to school walks past a barking, a scary barking dog every day. And the mom uses the system to like filter that mm-hmm. out so the daughter doesn't, and the dog's not a threat because it's on the it's, other it's side. It's on the of other the side of a fence. And, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and and she spends the first, I don't know, like twelve years of her life having um, disturbing imagery blurred out. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of things she doesn't know about, and of course, there's all sorts of dangers that she's not in a position to protect herself from because she hasn't learned from them. Um, uh, and and so the the mom monitors the daughter in this way, um, and and eventually, you know, so so she can keep the, her daughter in this. You know, it seems like a utopia, perfectly safe state. But of course, it's soon flipped on its head and it becomes a dystopian storyline right. because really it's it's those moments. You know, it's it's the fact that our children are exposed to dangers in part that helps them to grow. Mm-hmm. So that wouldn't really be utopian. Again, highlighting this struggle as part of the journey. Yeah, and, yeah, right. Yeah. Not to use the word journey like a like, like people on American Idol or something. I always hate this, that. This I just journey. kind of cringed at myself. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then another example from Black Mirror is uh, in the episode Crocodile. Um, so we might, and I've explored this in, elsewhere, in like in some of the Prindle Post stories that I've written. Um, 
is it really ideal for um, our systems of evidence in the criminal justice system, for those systems to be perfect, mm-hmm. right, such that um, we never get it wrong? Uh, that sounds good. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it seems... Um, but th- then that that says something about the relationship between... Now we're back a little bit to the relationship between governments and persons, but... Uh, from, from a distinctly technological angle, right? right? So in the episode Crocodile, um, there's this little gadget. This is kind of similar to the to the first story I told, but there's this little gadget that uh, that the police force can use to access your memories. Um, and so right now it's a huge problem. That, I mean, I witnessed testimony. It's almost surprising that it even is allowed to get used in criminal cases because it's so lousy mm-hmm. because we have these imperfect memories. Uh, yeah, yeah. But... The, by stipulation in this episode, they put this on uh, on a person when they want to interview them, and they can see exactly what you you actually witnessed, mm-hmm. well, not just what you take yourself to witness, not how you are interpreting uh, what you witnessed, but exactly what you witnessed. Um, and so th- th- there's this techn- uh, there's this danger technology poses of putting us in too close a relationship with governments. Maybe. I mm-hmm. mean, or maybe you might think, and I guess this is a matter of opinion, uh, or at least I don't know which direction the strongest argument leans toward, uh, right. <laughs> that, that, you know, okay, we'd always catch criminals. Right. And if you're, um, if you're accused and innocent, you would love that. Presumably. Because you could prove, right? Yeah. And if you're accused and guilty. Tough luck. Tough luck. You shouldn't commit the crime. It's what you get. <laughs> Okay, right. It's time for what are we liking this week? It's really what are we liking this summer? Yeah, <laughs> it's been a while. It has, and and interestingly, um, you'd think there would be lots of things on the list because it's been a while since our last episode. But we didn't like anything this we, summer. Yeah, no. we either didn't like stuff, <laughs> or you were traveling most of the summer, and um, so yeah. we weren't getting out to the movies. I watched a lot of Parks and Rec this yeah. summer. Um, What's we liking? Yeah, yeah. But a, a few things stand out. Um, so Spider-Man Far From Home, I thought, was just a blast. Uh, yeah, very fun. Really good. I'm angry at Sony. I'm angry at Disney. If they can't work this out, I'm I'm going to throw a fit. I, I don't know what that means, but um, <laughs> it, it's going to be bad. Okay, you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet. No, um, I really want to. just haven't had the time. Yeah, yeah. You've been a little swamped. Um, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I just loved the heck out of it. It was my second favorite movie of the summer. Um, surprisingly, at least to me, because um, the movie wasn't all that good and it didn't didn't look that good, but I had more fun at Ready or Not um, than I've had at any movie. In, Wait. And I don't know it how long. It was good and it looked good. Because yeah. it was campy horror, so it looked exact. I actually thought the the visual... I mean, they not to reveal too much, but they the whole show is just basically an excuse to have a bride run around and have her white dress get bloodier and bloodier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is really, like... Yeah, and it had, like you mentioned, coming out kind of an Evil Dead vibe yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so it was exactly as promised, and it was really good. As, for that kind of thing. As promised for that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I just think I liked it beyond... That kind of thing. I somehow. think uh, if people have seen the movie Drag Me to Hell, it's got a very similar kind of vibe, like mm. hor- campy horror. Right, right. Um, but had a great time at Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which had all sorts of nostalgic value. Yeah. You, you read the books as a kid, and I knew some of those stories 
Yeah. Yeah, they were, it's really iconic. The, the illustrations were really 80s iconic, um, like spooky, wappy. I actually went into Barnes & Noble to find it because um, I wanted to buy it for our son. And uh, I, so I was sure that it would be it's almost Halloween or mm -hmm. getting close anyway, almost Halloween. The friend. movie's out. Yeah, the movie's out. I thought they'd have it at an end cap. And then it occurred to me, like, I wonder if these days these books are considered too scary for kids because the, the stories really are frightening and the mm. illustrations are kind of terrifying so i wonder if they opted not to put the the um really scary illustrations on on the you know on an end cap on it where the, where they're advertising children's books mm -hmm. yeah yeah quite possible but i couldn't find it in the store at all so i was surprised i had to order it online so a sad thing that we have to report um we didn't go see it this weekend which we've been dying to see for the longest time um, because we wanted to see it with our son, who was off at a sleepover. Um, what do you think he did this weekend at his sleepover? He went and saw it without us. He went and saw it without us. So here we were being decent, and um, oh no, I don't want to see it without him. And first chance he got, he saw it. <laughs> but um, we will see that very soon and, and report back on it. Um, the other thing I'm really liking this week, we were at the Fanex, which is Salt Lake's um, Comic-Con, formerly mm -hmm. known as um, Salt Lake Comic-Con. Tell San Diego Comic Con sued them. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a panel on philosophical themes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And um, big room, completely full, great time, wonderful discussion, um, great questions with the audience. Yeah. So that, that, was, that was really nice um, for me. Me too. Okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage, that's I think ifan.com, all one word, to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.